BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Okay, just some news, some things to share with you. California, this is fascinating and good news. California just banned private prisons, including ICE detention facilities. This from Vice News. California just passed a bill banning all for-profit prisons and immigrant detention facilities. For-profit immigrant detention facilities. In the state of California, according to The Guardian, it was uh, Bill AB 32, Assembly Bill 32, and headed to Governor Gavin Newsom's desk for signing. Assemblyman Rob Bonta, who introduced the bill, said it is a stand against companies, quote, that only care about the almighty dollar. This is a good thing. There are currently four privately operated immigration detention centers in California. Two of them, Mesa Verde in Bakersfield and Adelanto Ice Processing Center in San Bernardino, are run by the Geo Group. This is one of the biggest private prison companies in the country. And together, these two Geo Group facilities can hold 1,940 people. So shutting down facilities by the state of California that are running purely for profit, a really good thing. I mean, this is like a really, really, really good thing. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is facing some serious legal challenges as the federal courts have revived the Emoluments Clause case. Now, this was a lawsuit that was brought by the Citizens for Ethics and Washington crew. And a couple of people who are parties to the lawsuit who run restaurants in Washington, D.C. And what they were alleging is that the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C. is unfairly competing with them because the president of the United States continues to own that hotel. And it is basically an open secret in Washington, D.C. that if you want to suck up to Donald Trump, go to his hotel and drop a bunch of cash. You know, the Saudis rented an entire floor of the hotel when they came to visit. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a night or some mind-boggling amount of money like that. And so what they said in this lawsuit is that he is violating the Emoluments Clause. And in the process of violating the Emoluments Clause, he's presenting us with unfair competition. A federal district court said, no, you know, you don't have standing, basically. This is not a legitimate case. And that was almost a year ago. And so it kind of got set aside, but the people 
who were filing the lawsuit, Crew and these two restaurateurs, said, we're going to continue. And so they took it to the appeals court. And a U.S. appeals court in New York, by a two-to-one vote, and it'd be interesting to see who appointed those judges, increasingly our entire judiciary is just basically an arm of the Republican Party and has been heavily politicized over the last 20, 30 years. This is the essence of my book, my new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. But anyhow, Lawrence Tribe is a Harvard law professor who's helping bring this case to court. And he says, this is huge. He says, we just won our emoluments clause appeal against President Trump in the Second Circuit on behalf of hotels, restaurants, and restaurant workers injured by Trump's unconstitutional and corrupt acceptance of foreign and domestic business. So this is exactly, by the way, the kind of corruption that the founders had in mind when they put the emoluments clause into the Constitution. And it is the kind of corruption that, frankly, I think, not just the emoluments clause, but I think that the impeachment clause is there for. And, the, you know, something that we all need to pay attention to. A few other things in the news that, you know, directly or indirectly tie back into all of this, into the debate. And Donald Trump just sent out this uh, fundraising letter saying that, uh, keep in mind, this went to people who have given money to Trump. I gave him five bucks back during the Republican primary, and I've been on his list forever, or at least Fred Flintstone has. He says, here's the top things we expect to hear from the Democrats. Banning plastic straws, destroying all fossil fuels, raising your taxes to pay for illegal criminals, light bulb ban, and no more cheeseburgers. See, this is the Fox News hysteria you know, uh, Laura Ingram had a piece of hamburger with a light bulb stuck in it, and she put a bunch of plastic straws in it and tried to sip it out of the straw as a stunt on television. Like, hey, let's own the libs. These people are stupid. Or let me rephrase that. Laura Ingram and Donald Trump believe that Republican voters are stupid. That Republican voters really don't care about the future of their children. That Republican voters really don't care if the world lives or dies. That Republican voters, you know, this is what they believe. And Trump is just laying this out in this fundraising email. By the way, the House Judiciary Committee has approved guidelines for their impeachment inquiry. Things are going to start getting really, really interesting. And I think one of the things to keep in mind, in fact, there's a great post by Ernest over on Democratic Underground about this, that some of the things that were not considering, you know, we make these Nixon-Trump comparisons. Nixon was a lame duck president. He was not running for re-election. Nixon's approval rating was 50% among Republicans in 1974. Trump's is 90%. So it's not going to be as easy as we may think or hope. But nonetheless, in my opinion, the, the crimes of this guy really need to be laid out. They need to be laid out explicitly and clearly. His campaign manager is a felon. His deputy campaign manager is a felon. His personal lawyer is a felon. His foreign policy advisor is a felon. His national security advisor is a felon. The entire Trump campaign was run by criminals. I don't know how often we can repeat that. but If they say explicitly, we are, doing, we are conducting an impeachment inquiry, which is basically what they said, then they acquire Article Three powers, that is, they become, you know, which is the judiciary. They acquire basically the powers of a, a federal grand jury. They can compel witnesses to testify. They can force the release of documents. The Supreme Court backed up Congress on this in U.S. v. Nixon, 
Back in 1974, when Richard Nixon said, I don't have to turn over the tapes, the Supreme Court said, yes, you do. And he did. Now, whether Trump will comply with a Supreme Court ruling is a damn good question. But this is what's going on. And the Judiciary Committee, God bless them, Jerry Nadler is starting to really behave seriously on this over the objections of the Republicans. This was all absolute party line vote over the objection of the Republicans. They also decided to change the rules so that their lawyers can interrogate witnesses for a full 30 minutes instead of giving Republicans five minutes every other question. That's great. Today, we're reading about Thunderdome politics, an uncivil war taking back our democracy in an age of Trumpian disinformation and Thunderdome politics by Greg Sargent, the Washington Post columnist. This is from his chapter on voter suppression. It's page 37. Republicans and Democrats inhabit different political realities, as mentioned in a previous chapter. But there are certain facts about our politics that are just objectively true. One of them is this. Generally speaking, efforts to make it harder to vote are almost always pushed by Republicans. You cannot understand what is happening in American politics right now without recognizing this stark and very fundamental difference between the two major political parties. During this decade, procedural hurdles were put into place in around 20 states that in some manner or other have made it harder to vote or to register to vote or have undone previous efforts to make voting or registering easier or have otherwise threatened serious disenfranchisement. Most of them were the creation of Republican lawmakers and officials. The difference in the two parties' national platforms for 2016 tells the story. The GOP platform champions additional hurdles that are absurdly disproportionate to the phantom abuse it alleges, while the Democratic platform champions multiple specific ways to make it easier to vote, not harder. The most common and controversial of methods used by Republicans to suppress Democratic turnout is the requirement that would-be voters present identification at the polls. The game here tends to turn on requiring forms of ID that some groups are less likely to have, making participation harder for them. Other restrictions include techniques like cutting back on early voting and making it harder to register, both of which have, in recent years, been instituted in multiple states. Republicans who have passed laws making it harder to vote have tended to claim such measures are necessary to protect against, quote, voter fraud. We'll look at this in more detail below, but for now, notes that Note that most of the states that have passed such measures did so while under Republican control. As New York University political scientist Samuel Isikoff has memorably put it, the single predictor necessary to determine whether a state will impose voter access restrictions is whether Republicans control the ballot access process. Scholars trace the modern era of warfare over election rules to the intensely contested presidential election of 2000 in which a divided Supreme Court halted the recount in Florida, throwing the presidency to George W. Bush. The closeness and partisan acrimony of that contest, combined with the intense national focus on election rules that accompanied the court battle over it, helped persuade both parties to invest much more attention and energy on those rules. As a result, both the implementation of measures restricting the ballot and the legal battles over them have intensified in recent years. A brief glance at the surprising history of voter ID laws begins to tell the story of this tightening. In the 1970s, several states implemented voter ID measures, but all of them provided for ways that voters without the proper ID could cast a ballot. By 2000, there were 14 such laws, and they had been implemented by politicians in both parties. But by the mid-2000s, amid rising post-2000 acrimony, 
a handful of red states began implementing voter ID laws that the nonpartisan National Con Conference of State Legislatures described as, quote, strict, meaning that they make it easy to disqualify those who don't pass muster. After one of those laws in Indiana was challenged and then upheld in 2008 by the Supreme Court, an escalation began that gained momentum in the Obama era. From 2010 onward, the adoption of voter ID laws in general and of strict ones in particular accelerated. Though a handful were blocked in the courts, as of this writing, a total of 34 states have voter ID laws in effect, 24 that are deemed non-strict and 10 that are deemed strict. The strict ones are in red states or in swing states where they were implemented by Republicans. The story is very similar if you evaluate the state's voting rules in a broader way by including not just voter ID measures, but also cutbacks to early voting and restrictions on registration. Here the trend is just as pronounced. After the 2010 elections, the Brennan Center for Justice documented a sharp rise in efforts to pass such measures in the state legislatures across the country. Not all these efforts bore fruit, but many did. By the time voting took place in Election Day 2016, some 14 states had these new restrictions in place for the first time in a presidential election. This narrative contains some important truths. Some of the forms that these restrictions on voting access have taken in recent years are diabolically obvious in their efforts to keep constituencies supportive of Democrats from voting. Still others boast the distinction of being more insidiously designed and thus less obvious in their intentions. The book is An Uncivil War by Greg Sargent of The Washington Post. You know, some people use CBD oil to deal with aches and pains. Other people use it to help sleep. Other people use it because hey, it's an anti-inflammatory and they know that that's a healthy thing. Louise and I use uh, CBD oil for all of the above and we use New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals CBD oil is the best out there. It doesn't get you high. It's made out of hemp. It's, uh, but it is a cannabinoid. This is CBD. It's pure CBD, in fact, or, or damn near pure. And it's great for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. It's non-toxic and potent. The brand I trust most is New Leaf Naturals, NU Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the USA. The only ingredient is hemp, so it's pure, simple, and legal. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's newleafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to newleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. So let's check in with uh, Adam Green, co-founder of Bold Progressives, the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, the PCCC, boldprogressives.org is the website, uh, Twitter at Adam Green or at Bold Progressive. Adam, great to have you <laughs> on the line. So your hey, thoughts on the, deb on the debate? Yeah, I thought it was a good debate. You know, I'm uh, challenging myself to not drink my own Kool-Aid as Elizabeth Warren supporter, but I guess I, I felt very good about her performance. I thought Bernie did well. I think when the history is written on debate, there will be seen as a huge gap between what the kind of pundit class saw on TV and what actual voters saw on TV. And I think a lot of the murmur among traditional journalists and pundits gave Biden high scores or said it was kind of a status quo debate with nothing really changing. 
Whereas I think that you know a lot of regular voters probably saw some other stuff with Joe Biden and saw people like Elizabeth Warren looking very presidential, both in what they said and how they composed themselves. You know, as a Warren supporter, I thought that her getting across her personal story of growing up poor in Oklahoma, being a single mom in Texas, and connecting those to her big ideas really resonated with people. And just some anecdotal feedback I've heard since then really said to me that you know those things really resonated with regular people, even if pundits were kind of bored by those issues or those stories. Right. You know, on the substance of Medicare for all, I think that was the beginning of a debate that America needs to see about how much money we would save under Medicare for all, how much money families would save, how much better the service would be. And it was really nice to, for the first time, have Warren and Sanders on the same stage with others who are high profile arguing against it so that the American people got the, you know, part of the debate they deserve. Right. Overall, I do think that Elizabeth Warren's core challenge in the debate was taking the dynamic that's worked so well for her on the campaign trail, which is marrying her big ideas to her very personal story of struggle and actually getting it across in a very confined environment. I thought she did a very good job at getting across both her ideas and her personal story. Yeah, I agree. And I thought Bernie did a good job, too. One of the things that you guys are famous for, in fact, I still am using the Progressive Change Campaign Committee's survey from, what, four or five years ago about what Americans want. You did that great one with all the the kind of horizontal bar charts. All these, as I recall, it was like 25 or 30 issues. How are your members, people who go to boldprogressives.org and sign up, I'm assuming that that's who you're sending your questionnaires and things to, how are people responding to the debate in general and to the Democratic field more broadly? Yeah, well, first, thanks for mentioning that polling. The Progressive Change Institute, our sister organization, did that and is about to do more of that. We call it the Big Ideas Poll, and it's at thinkbig.us okay. slash polling, and people can see all the polling for themselves. And there's more of that to come with so many new, you know, so many of the big ideas four years ago, like a Green New Deal and expand Social Security and debt-free college, which nobody was talking about are now squarely in the mainstream of public debate. So what we'll be doing is actually testing a lot of the new ideas that are not yet where progressives are ahead of the public chatter, but where the American people are with us. Right. And I think that what's beautiful about these debates is that we have two of the best arguers for our side, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who can just make the case for these issues, talk, right. talk about the logic of them, talk about the impact on regular people's lives. So when Elizabeth Warren was pressed to, you know, they were trying to get her to say that taxes will go up. And instead, she was like, what really impacts families is cost. And when you're paying a huge copay at a doctor or paying a huge amount for a prescription because your insurance won't cover it, or when your doctor's out of network and you're paying more, all of these are costs that add up that will no longer be there under Medicare for All. That's what we need our people to be saying, not just the slogan Medicare for All, but the rationale and impact. And Bernie, same thing. Like He was so good at making clear that you know, we're on course for spending $50 trillion over the next X number of years and said, well, we'll only spend 30 if we have Medicare for All because you eliminate the CEO pay, the hundreds of billions in marketing, the duplicative costs, the administrative costs. And that was great that he made that point. So I, I think that you know, we're kind of educating the public through the prism of this presidential campaign by having two such strong, bold progressives out there with Warren and Sanders. And what are the top issues that you're hearing? What's, what's popping for you? Well, you mean in the debates or? Well, in, more generally. I mean, you know, you and your sister organization doing all this polling and, yep. and looking at what's going okay. on. Obviously, healthcare is one of the top ones. What else is in there? 
So one big lesson, I really do encourage people to see the comprehensive polling at thinkbig.us slash polling, is we line up apples to apples how a bunch of progressive issues play. And one trend that I, I see there is that the bread and butter issues, the issues that regular people experience in their lives, social security, student debt, childcare, things like that, pay, jobs, the progressive positions, the very bold progressive positions, the hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of investment progressive positions pull through the roof, you know, span Social Security 70% to 17%, including the majority of Republican voters, if they're bread and butter layman's issues. The wonkier issues, things like restoring Glass-Steagall, which I support, or a financial transactions tax on Wall Street, which I support, when people hear about it, there's a plurality, you know, more people say they support it than oppose it, but there's a huge amount of undecided voters, which means they just aren't, it's not intuitive to them. They don't understand so think, the issues, yeah. Yeah, or at least they're not willing to weigh in upon hearing it the first time and right. say, I support or I oppose, which says to me that Warren and Sanders are doing the exact right thing of focusing their campaigns on the really big, systemic, impactful issues in people's lives, right? So mm-hmm. child care, health care, public school education and teacher pay, but also making college, eliminating student debt. Like, these are the things that resonate with people. And as the conservative Democrats of the world try to strike fear in the hearts of primary voters by saying, whoa, 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 too bold, we're going to lose the center of the country, our polling consistently shows that more is more. When we polled, just to give you one example, when we polled free community college versus debt-free college at any two- or four-year public institution, Berkeley, University of Virginia, Rutgers, you name it, there was way more support for debt-free college at any public university as opposed to just free community college. And that's because more people's lives will be impacted. So I think the conservative Democrats are wrong when they try to tell us to trim our sails and Bernie and Elizabeth are right. Yeah, there you go. Adam Green, you're doing God's work, Adam. Thanks so much for coming on the program and keep it up. Boldprogressives.org and thinkbig.us. You can tweet him at Adam Green. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Yeah, good talking with you. And like I said, keep it up. It's important stuff. We'll be back with your calls. Here we're talking broadly about the debate or anything else you want to bring up. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. So here on the program recently, we had a fascinating conversation with Professor Richard Wolf about how banks have to keep basically 10% in reserve in case there's a run on the bank. Everybody wants their deposits back. You know, the banks can lend out 90%, but they have to keep that 10% so they can pay you, you know, give you your money back if you want it. Fannie and Freddie have a similar requirement in case mortgages go south. Mortgages did go south in 2008. Fannie and Freddie couldn't cover the shortfall and as a result they collapsed and we you and i had to pay 190 billion dollars to bail them out well back then their reserve requirement was 45 cents on a hundred dollars now it's 19 cents on a hundred dollars our special 
members only riff you can find over at tomharbin.com is all about this, what it means, where it could go, and what we can do about it. So check it out at tomharbin.com. Let's try out our phones here. Dave in Northampton, Massachusetts, listening to WHMP. Dave, can you hear me? Yes. I'm really pleased with how your show over the years has been able to convey, you know, what's really going on in the ground and the political and the economic scene. But, you know, I often wondered if it's possible once a week, if you could touch on, say, the science of modern propaganda and the psychology of sociopathic behavior as it relates to leadership corporate boardrooms and how corporations work. We've certainly discussed that a number of times on this program, David. Yes. I was curious to find out if you were able to reference various work that people have specialized in the study of those areas that could, you know, even... Mm. You know where I'm going at with it. Yeah, I mean, right to Trump and to the Republican Party and to the corporate oligarchs. I get it. And we've talked about all of them. I've written about all these things, in fact, in numerous op-eds over the year. But your preference for topics is noted, and I appreciate the call. Thank you, David. Rob in Mesa, Arizona. Hey, Rob, what's up? Usually when the word socialism comes up from the opposition, I usually fight back by just saying, what, you against the military? You know, because basically yeah. it's fully controlled by our, our government. Yeah, it's entirely and socialist. I thought, you know, then I got to thinking, I'm trying to get another angle on it, and it's like, uh, well, our government doesn't own corporations, but it defines all the rules and regulations for that. But when you form a corporation, you basically file papers, make yourself CEO, president, or whatever, you know, do all your paperwork. My question for you is, what government function or category would you call a corporation? It's like a little mini dictatorship. Yeah, corporations are kingdoms, essentially. They're kind of left over from feudal days only installed via capitalism instead of installed by war or violence. But if you wanted a better analogy for explaining socialism to people, say, oh, you know, you're opposed to fire departments. You don't want to have publicly owned fire departments. You're opposed to Social Security. You're opposed to Medicare. I mean, if you're really opposed to all those things, if you really hate socialism, then I'm not sure that there is any developed democracy where you could go live. Is there? Is right. there any country in and the I world usually, that has ever prospered without some level of socialism? Right. And I usually jump to uh, kind of along that same line of like what you want, everything privatized. You want a toll on every street you drive on. You right. want every park to have be privately owned. You want everything to be privately owned so that every move you make, you have to pay to some profit making company. Right. And if you ask that um, question, by the way, of David Koch, when he was alive, he would have said yes. Right. Yeah. And I know that's the, the whole <laughs> it's a platform he ran for vice president on, essentially. But, Rob, I think that all of us need to do what we can to take back that word. But at the same time, I think that we need to also highlight the positive values going forward. Rob, thanks for the call. T.C. in Missouri. Hey, T.C., what's up? Good afternoon. My frustration is not with Donald Trump. He's a racist. My frustration not with the Republican Congress. The majority of them are racist. My frustration, not even with the Trump supporters, majority of them are racist. My frustration is with this so-called liberal news media, which we know is a lie. For the last 12 years at least, 2007, the news media as a whole seemed like they're afraid to challenge these Republicans. Mm -hmm. They knew that what happened in 2007, Tea Party. Why did the Tea Party come along? Barack Obama. Yep. And the news media as a whole 
did not, and they still not challenge these Republicans or Donald Trump. And that's what my frustration is. If these so-called professional news people and journalists, and if I as a layman would have a follow-up question, you're trying to tell me so-called professional journalists? They act like they're afraid to challenge these Republicans. Now, they do challenge Democrats when they get them in front of them. For example, with Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. But they seem like they're afraid to challenge these coward male Republicans. I'm with you, TC. I'm I'm absolutely with you. And and this has been the case with the media for a long, long time. It goes back to a strategy that was put together by a Republican consultant called Work the Refs. They started pounding, and this was back in the 80s. This was during the Reagan administration. Started pounding on the media, started pounding on NPR and public television, started pounding on the big networks, saying, you guys, liberal bias, liberal bias, liberal bias, to the point where they were looking up and seeing which reporters had supported which candidates or made contributions to candidates, all that kind of thing. So all the networks you know, made rules that you may not make contributions to political candidates. Everybody got gun-shy because the Republican, you know, this work the referee's strategy was so successful, and it continues to be successful. I'm with you. Dennis in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Dennis, you're on the air. Hey, Tom, how's it going? I have a question today about the gold standard. Yeah. So I agree with you that if, you know, we're in a, if the economy is in a recession, the government should increase spending on programs to put people back to work to increase demand. But before, you know, you said that if the economy is growing at 2%, then the supply of money should grow at 2% also, or, you know, inflation. The problem, though, is if you go to the gold standard and you're in a recession, you have to sell the gold to maintain the value of the currency. Right. How would you print more reserves? you know, to increase the government spending. If you have to sell all of those gold reserves, how would you do that? Well, the gold reserves are bought and sold. I mean, there are still, there's a few countries who still do this. And we used to do it. We had the gold in Fort Knox. And you just sell it on the open market. The spot market for gold is very, very robust. The way that the treasury maintains or modifies our money supply is by buying and selling treasuries. And when they buy treasuries, they're basically taking that money out of circulation. When they sell treasuries, they're basically putting money back into circulation. That's the way that the Fed regulates our money supply, to the best of my knowledge. I mean, I'm not an authority on the Fed, but that's my understanding. Um, you know, FDR during the Great Recession, when he increased, you know, services and all the New Deal programs, he uh, took us off the gold standard for a while. Yes. Did you know that? Yes. Yeah. He went into deficit spending. Right. Go ahead. Specifically because he wouldn't be able to finance all those Although, Although he was not the first to do that. The only president who ever actually balanced the budget the way the gold standard envisions, the only president who ever did that was Andrew Jackson. And when he did that, it threw the country, you know, because there was no way to invest in U.S. government debt anymore. So there was no safe haven for savings for businesses or for individuals. And the consequence of that was that it threw the country into the deepest and longest depression in our history. Right. But, but the debt yeah. really got jacked up during the Civil War. That was Abraham Lincoln. And then that led to the greenback and all that kind of stuff. But uh, right. thank you. Thank you for sharing your perspective on that. You're listening to Tom Hartman. I've got an important message for all my listeners. Economists will tell you that rising gold prices are an indicator of a failing currency. Well, gold is already up over 10% just since January and up over 33% in the last three years. What is all this really telling us? 
Well, the last crash was just a warning. It's only been papered over with trillions of dollars in new debt, and statistically, the next crash is already overdue. This reality has pushed the demand for precious metals to price levels not seen in nearly six years. The time to buy gold is now, before the crash and before the next price increase. The big questions everyone asks are, who can I trust and what types of gold do I buy? Call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 gold The proper gold and silver strategy will help secure all your major assets, including your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one 888 gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's one 888 owngold one gold Jack in Petaluma, California. Hey, Jack, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom. You and I are about the same age, right around 68. Yeah, 70. so we're, we're a couple of old farts. What's, what's up, Jack? <laughs> well, I want to know, do you think we could build an interstate highway system today? No. No, there's no, there's not I know we could. There, there's not a single Republican who would be willing to borrow the kind of money that Dwight Eisenhower borrowed to build the interstate highway system. And for that matter, when Eisenhower did that, our national debt was way less than even one billion dollars. It was just a few hundred million. Exactly. Well, actually, and it was after World War II. It might have been in today's dollars. It might have been the equivalent of a couple of billion, but it got largely paid down throughout the 50s and 60s. But anyhow, Jack, I, sorry, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here. What's your point? <laughs> My point is, during that same time, you and I, young labor, <laughs> we paid for not only that, we also paid for the Vietnam War. We paid for the end of Gemini and the beginning of Apollo space program. Yep. And we also, not only that, we built the strongest military. Yeah, and there was also, this was the tail end of the TVA, the tail end of the Rural Electrification Administration, the tail end of the Rural Telephony Administration that brought electricity and telephones to people in rural communities that the private sector was unwilling to serve because it wasn't profitable. We paid for all those things, Jack. You're absolutely right. And then in the 60s, the Johnson administration rolled out Medicare and Medicaid and a bunch of poverty programs that cut poverty in the United States by almost 50% over the next decade. And so much of that has been rolled back by Reaganism and by this, you know, austerity and neoliberalism that we've been living under ever since 1981 without respite. Even the two Democratic presidents we've had since then have not been able to reverse it. And the Republicans certainly will have nothing to do with reversing it as long as they have control of any of the three bodies or any of the four branches, three branches of government, the four bodies, basically, you know, the Supreme Court, the White House, the House or the Senate, the latter two comprising the legislative branch. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your perspective on that. Deb in Saginaw, Michigan. Hey, Deb, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I saw your interview on the Young Turks, and I really enjoyed it. I'm a member. Thank you. Cenk is a great guy. I've known Cenk for years, and he does a great job. And I was very, very happy Um, he invited me on. Yes. Between you and him, you're saving a lot of people's sanity. Good. (laughs) I just wanted to say about Trump, you know, not paying his bills in the rural communities where he's holding his rallies and, 
you know, how many times he's been in lawsuits and yeah. things along those Well, it's those not just lines. that. He still owes Washington, D.C. a million dollars for the security for the parties that he had on inaugural night in January of 2017. Yes. And I guess the part of the question was, you know, does he like it? You know, mm-hmm. like these lawsuits and all of this. I guess my opinion is he loves it. Wow. Because my feelings is this, because it's his buzz. He gets an adrenaline rush from circumventing the law, from, you know, trying to find the loopholes and taxes, trying to circumvent our Constitution. He's always looking for that angle. And I really think he gets an adrenaline rush from that. And that's his big art of the deal. If he can do that, it just keeps building and building and building. And he just needs it more and more and more. And that goes right along with that narcissistic personality disorder. So what you're suggesting, Deb, is that in addition to being a pathological liar, Donald Trump is also a pathological thief, essentially. Correct. He gets a buzz from it. If there is a back way, I bet you he sits there and says, when someone tells him, well, you know, we don't do it this way or this is against the law, he goes, uh... Really? I don't really care. How can I get around that? Well, look what happened with Kellyanne Conway. This office within the special counsel's office, which is not Robert Mueller, this is a permanent office that's in the Department of Justice. And they came forward and they said, Kellyanne Conway keeps violating the Hatch Act. And by the way, you violate the Hatch Act, you get fines and you go to jail. She has violated this Hatch Act over and over and over. She's such a serial offender that she should be removed from federal office. And Donald Trump says, nah, I'm not going to do that. I don't give a damn about the law. And exactly. He gets, I'm telling you, you know, for as much as he doesn't drink or do any drugs, this is his drug. Yeah, I think you're absolutely his right. Dan. Drug of choice. And because he's been able to do this to people, maybe with less money or less lawyers, every single time he gets away with it and pushes that envelope, man, this guy gets a rush. Yeah, I think you're right. (laughs) Thanks for the call. Denise in Calumet, Michigan. Hey, Denise, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech. Hi, how are you, Tom? I haven't called in a little while, but if you've ever witnessed the folding of the flag, there's reasons for every fold. And fold number seven says, the tribute to our armed forces, for it is through the armed forces that we protect our country and our flag against all enemies, whether they be found within or without the boundaries of our republic. And I believe that William Barr, Trump, his whole organization, they have become enemies to our republic. Yeah, they are certainly enemies to the ideals of our republic. To our democracy, yes. And to the extent that that they are basically collaborating with foreign governments in order order to change the nature of those governments or of democracy around the world, whether it's Duterte in the Philippines or Netanyahu in Israel or Putin in Russia or uh, MBS in Saudi Arabia or Erdogan in Turkey or Orban in Hungary. I mean, you know, or Jair Bolsonaro now down in Brazil. Pick your country that has flipped authoritarian in the last decade or so and that Trump has been sucking up to. And he is, at the same time that he's encouraging all that, which is a terrible 
thing, you know, we're seeing now other European countries now, you're seeing movements rising that they want authoritarian governments. But at the same time, he is changing the nature of America. No more press conferences, no more accountability from the fourth estate, which is called the fourth estate because it's functionally the fourth branch of government as the founders envisioned it. The press is literally the only business that is mentioned in the entire Constitution is the media, our press. And he has just violated all these norms and is pushing us in that autocratic direction. It, it is not a healthy thing. And I would hope that if he gets out of hand and tries not to leave office, mm-hmm. that our armed forces would stick to what Fold 7 says in the flag. You know, I had no idea that there were phrases for each There's one of them. 12 the f- of them, yeah. For yeah. The 12 folds for the flag, and each fold means something. How'd you learn that, Denise? Well, it's in our local newspaper, and I have had to go to several funerals recently. One was my brother-in-law, and another was a very close friend. We're like family to him. He was blinded in Vietnam, Hmm. and then he survived cancer, and he was 68, and he just passed away. But during his lifetime, he built a golf course. He had his own sawmill, planed his own wood to build a house. Hmm. I mean, these guys have been just all hurt in Vietnam, but he was totally blind, and he did all this. So I've been able to see these flag-folding ceremonies, and they are so impressive. Yeah. And in our recent newspaper, there's a whole section about the flag. And I was really interested in reading about that when I found what the folds mean. And today I went back to find Fold 7 when I heard about him not leaving the White House. Right. Yeah, that's remarkable. I have a flag that was uh, flown over the Capitol building in honor of our program, which was really, really sweet. Well, that's Um, really cool, because your program is awesome. (laughs) Thank you, Denise. And it's all folded up, you know, just like they do for the funerals. Uh, That's remarkable. I didn't know. Denise, thank Thank you. you. Thank you for the information. Thanks for the call. That was a great one. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Today we're reading The Shadow President, The Truth About Mike Pence by Michael D'Antonio. This is from the first chapter. For decades, Pence had presented himself as a humble servant who could be entrusted with power because he was at heart a mild-mannered Midwesterner. Friends and foes alike said his major character trait was extreme niceness. When given the opportunity, Pence described himself as a true Hoosier, son of Indiana, who was a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. This is how he had introduced himself to the country at the Republican National Convention six months earlier. The list contrasted with the usual pledge politicians make to put country first. This is what President Obama did after the 2016 election when he said, We are not Democrats first, we are not Republicans first, we are Americans first. The vice president's self-declared identity revealed both his priorities and the source of his power. For 30 years, he had helped lead the Republican Party into a closer alliance with preachers who were turning evangelical Christianity from a religion into a political crusade that engaged in a culture war with non-believers. The aim of many was to destroy abortion rights, roll back the equality gained by gay citizens, and prepare the nation for the second coming of Christ. Pence and others used martial metaphors and considered themselves warriors of the Christian right, both besieged and called upon to fight. Quote, 
Those who would have us ignore the battle being fought over life, marriage, and religious liberty have forgotten the lessons of history, said Pence in 2010. America's darkest moments have come when economic arguments trumped moral principles. Pence's allies in his war included hugely wealthy donors who, despite their vast wealth accumulated at a time of historic inequality, also posed as victims. As libertarians in the mold of Ayn Rand's cardboard characters, they felt inhibited in the pursuit of even greater riches by a government that imposed foolish regulations and would redistribute their wealth to the supposedly indolent poor. Starting with this perspective, they denied the science behind environmental protection, demanded tax cuts for themselves, and insisted on massive reductions in programs serving anyone who wasn't rich. The victimhood claimed by both the libertarians and the Christian right permitted the construction of an alternative reality that denied their own power and masked their ambition to make politics and culture conform to an ideology that included white Christian supremacy and predatory capitalism. It also denied the progress they had made in their construction of their own political might. With his oath of office, Vice President Pence became both the free marketer's hero and the most successful Christian supremacist in American history. Most of Pence's life had been preparation for this moment, and possibly one more. His lifelong goal, set when he was a boy, was the Oval Office itself. Remarkably, he had reached this point by tying his fate to Donald J. Trump, a man whose immorality in the form of lying, cheating, and deceiving in every aspect of his life, from his marriage to his businesses, had made him a living exemplar of everything that Christianity and conservatism abhorred. However, this record also suggested that Pence was more likely to assume the highest office in the land than most vice presidents who had come before. To put it bluntly, Trump was vulnerable to impeachment. If this occurred, Pence would see the hand of God at work in his elevation to the presidency. In the meantime, he would wait and watch. On Inauguration Day, with Pence looking on, a slightly stooped Donald Trump stepped forward when it was his turn to face the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Roberts. Beside Trump stood his wife, Melania, the former fashion model, who held two Bibles, Lincoln's and Trump's own. At the stroke of noon, the president-elect raised his right hand and placed his left on the Bibles. As he did this, Trump's family members and hundreds of political and government figures strained to see the moment. Trump and Pence were a study in contrast. At age 58, Pence appeared trim, perhaps even athletic, and could have passed for a man 10 years younger. His jacket was neatly buttoned, his hands were clasped at his waist, and his smooth face was set in a half-smile. In sum, he resembled a small-town pastor, or maybe even a funeral director. Mere feet away, a stern-faced 70-year-old Trump stood with his coat hanging open like a caftan to reveal a long red necktie. Despite much cosmetic intervention, he looked old and tired. At the conclusion of the presidential oath, which had been voiced by 44 presidents before him, Trump said the words, so help me God, and accepted the congratulations of those closest to him with a thin-lipped, toothless grin. He then delivered a 15-minute speech replete with distortions and falsehoods that were his trademark. He declared that America was awash with crime and despair and under constant attack. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now, said Trump. It was the most remembered phrase of the address. That was some weird S-word, former President George W. Bush was heard to remark as he left the inaugural stand. Weird was the mildest word that one could attach to the 45th President of the United States as he launched an administration that would be stained by scandal and corruption so broad it defied a citizen's ability to grasp. 
Cronyism, secrecy, and nepotism would flourish. Presidential lies daily cataloged by the Washington Post and others would come at the rate of more than 150 per month. From the moment of his oath, Mike Pence, the vice president, faced the historic, some would say daunting, challenge of dealing with an erratic and undisciplined commander-in-chief. The book, The Shadow President, The Truth About Mike Pence. You know, the demands of the, uh, the economy that we've had since Reagan, you know, as the middle class gets wiped out, more and more of us are working more and more hours and in many cases more and more jobs and not getting quite as much sleep as we used to. And therefore, we end up with bags under our eyes. What do you do about that? What works is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TryPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM. Check in with uh, Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do. Ellen Ratner's book on the line with us is Bob Nave, author of Sideswipe, former Ohio congressman. Yes, sir, Tom, from the great state of Ohio. And Mm -hmm. from the Washington courthouse. So what's up? We've got to assume, because the House Judiciary Committee approved a resolution that outlines the rules and scope for impeachment inquiry into President Trump, so you can bet, of course, that's going to come up is a question. Yeah. And, now, and Bob, I have a question for you. The, yeah, sure. My understanding is that when Congress explicitly begins an impeachment inquiry, that their powers are expanded from Article One powers, they can subpoena and beg for information, to Article Three powers, that's the judiciary, they basically can operate as a grand jury and compel testimony and compel the, the transmission to Congress of things like documents. This is, this is what the Nixon, U.S. v. Nixon case in 1974 was, where the Supreme Court forced Nixon to hand over the tapes. And that being the case, was the language in this resolution that Jerry Nadler held the vote on enough so that there is enough of a parallel between his committee today and the Judiciary Committee in the House back in 1974 that he will be able to force the Trump administration to give them things that they're asking for, including Trump's tax returns, the way that Nixon was forced to do so back in the 70s? Or was it weak enough that there may be some dispute and it's going to have to go to the Supreme Court again? 
Well, you know, on this one, Tom, I'm not a constitutional expert, but this is going to allow Chairman Nadler, as chair of judiciary, this official resolution, the ability to say that certain hearings are impeachment hearings, and then they're going to designate hearings related to the probe, and they can make it a full committee, they can make it a subcommittee, and it gives additional time for them to do questioning. And it does stipulate that the president's legal counsel is able to review and respond in writing to impeachment-related evidence only on Chairman Nadler's invitation, which Mm. is interesting, because this is an additional step, obviously, because they're not going to be able to just sit there and argue, because the scope of this is to see, is there enough information that comes in of potential violations? And by the way, they're going to specifically look at the emoluments clause, you know, whether the president's making money off of the office, hush money payments used to cover up alleged affairs, and obstruction of justice in the form of what happened with the Mueller report. So what this does, to answer your question, uh, to the best of my knowledge, the resolution formalizes the impeachment investigation, and that doesn't mean that anybody has to endorse impeachment or not. I was there during the Clinton impeachment. This begins the process. It's going to give Nadler more power, well, as chairman and the committee, more powers than they would ever, ever have had in any regular investigation. Now, during the Clinton impeachment, the Clinton administration turned over documents that the House Judiciary Committee asked for once they had declared an impeachment hearing. Had they not, right. what would it have happened? Might oh, be. there would have been the same thing if they don't hear. When it goes to official level of impeachment, because they're taking that official position and designating exactly this committee or subcommittee is for the purpose of impeachment inquiry, not the purpose of impeachment, but impeachment inquiry, it gives him the power technically to be able to get basically just about anything that they want. Now, anything you know that can be disputed in a court, but I would say it would be expedited to be decided if the president decides, well, I'm just not going to give it to you, because this is a different level of power with the judiciary right. As the Supreme Court did with U.S. Nixon. You know, yes. They turned that yes. around really fast. Fascinating. Okay. And now, if the impeachment committee or the Judiciary Committee asks for, say, Trump's tax returns, and Trump says, no, no way, I'm not going to give them to you, period. And it goes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, no, you have to turn them over. And Trump says, I'm still not going to do it. Then what happens? Well, then, obviously, uh, to answer that question, there has to be a move to impeach the president. Right. That's basically the only penalty. Although the IRS could be forced to turn them over, but Trump is claiming that he has the authority to stop the IRS commissioner from doing that, right? Well, he actually doesn't under these terms. I mean, again, impeachment has a wide level because you're taking the official step of impeachment. And what's going to happen? The media is going to catch the candidates. Do you support impeaching President Trump? That is really not the question. Do they support the inquiry into getting the facts and not being evaded by the president? Right. Well, yeah, the press tries to turn everything into a damn horse race, you know, a wrestling match. It's bizarre. Bob, and and so thank you for being part of the Honest Press, Bob. I do appreciate it. The the, the, the whole story press. Bob Day with Talk Media News. Thank you. Thank you. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos. It's us, right? The people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.